Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandspring. Good afternoon, Simon, and welcome to uh, welcome to our 105th show, I think it is now. It is our 105th show and our penultimate show of 2021. Indeed, before we go into our very own Christmas recess and um, potentially have massive parties uh, um, that we shouldn't have, or maybe not. Um. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to be able to have a Schrodinger's party where you can say that you're not sure that the party exists, but you're certain that rules were followed at the party that you're not sure existed. But there we go. Absolutely. Who am I? I, I, I'm, I I'm not. I'm not Dominic Ralph. Um, so, you are not yes, indeed. I am. I am not indeed. But at least we haven't got um, uh, Matt Hancock telling us not to kiss people at Christmas parties. No. No, no, it would be a little unwise. So this evening's show, uh, Simon, obviously with uh, a lot of lot of news headlines um, lately about uh, people crossing from the border in France across the English Channel and the very perilous crossing that that involves. So, you know, rather than rely on the tabloid headlines, we thought we'd invite along a couple of experts or people who are highly interested and engaged with the subject to. To, to give us some more frontline insight into uh, into the subject. Indeed, yes. So we've got not one but but two experts to talk to us today um, and to give us some decent insight, as you say, beyond the headlines, um, and to tell us actually um, what their experiences are and what and what's happening. So um, we hope um, that we might be able to squeeze in some talk about by elections. Um, so, um, but let's get in our esteemed guests first, shall we? We have Miranda and Polly joining us. Good evening, both. Miranda, would you um, would you like to introduce yourself and what your involvement um, is with this subject? Hi there. Yes, um, I, I, I've been working um, in um, social care for the past five years. Um, my um, interest in um, the more vulnerable groups that we have um, was um, sparked when I left IBM. Um, I worked, I've worked with different groups of people. I've worked in um, addiction, I've worked in homelessness and latterly in um, the asylum seekers who come to the UK. Um, it spiked my interest because I have my own children um, who also have their own children now. and. Um, I, I was thinking about the, the sort of like the pain their parents um, must have felt and of course they must have felt about having um, to come to a country that they wouldn't have contact with family or with friends um, and they'd be totally alone at a young age um, and that sparked my interest because I was thinking if it had ever happened to my children or my children's children, I would want people um, to be there looking after the young person, my child, um, the person that I couldn't look after. Okay, that's lovely. Thank you. No worries, Polly. Would you like to introduce it? introduce yourself and tell us what your interest in this subject and how you became involved hi guys so yeah i'm polly um i have worked in this sector for about nearly three years now um 
So I currently am a support worker working directly with an uh, accompanying an, an asylum-seeking children. Um, but I've worked for in a local authority position, um, you know, in the same sector uh, for the Red, British Red Cross uh, refugee program in Portsmouth and also Care for Calais, which is um, a charity that helps those in, oh, don't know who's that banging in, sorry, um, Care for Calais. They help uh, in Calais, in other countries as well, and also in the UK uh, as well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, apologies for the um, for the slight technical issues and, the, and a bit of the noise there. I'm not sure where that is, but we're we're going to we're going to carry on. Um, so um, so the first question I'd um, I'd like to ask is to is to Polly is um, so can you share what life is like for those people who are in and around Calais trying to make to make this crossing? Yes. What's it like for them on the ground? So the life that they lead is pretty hideous out in Calais. Um, I've always been really interested in it and I finally got the chance to go out there to work uh, for Care for Calais. And yeah, so these young people, they are living um, under like tarpaulin, so they don't have tents because when they do have tents, um, the police, the French police just come and um, basically like cut them up and just dispose of them. Um, so they'll, they might, if they're lucky, have like a bit of tarpaulin that they'll just kind of cover themselves with, like from a tree type thing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's absolutely dire. Um, they are just hoping that they can make that crossing, but I think it is becoming increasingly, increasingly difficult. So I think some of them have just resigned the fact that they will just live kind of on the streets in Calais. Um, yeah, so charities see them charities clothe them they have no you know they can't work they can't do anything for themselves and yeah it's really unfortunate it's it's not it's not pretty out there at all there's obviously there, there was infamously the, the infamously the big camp a few years ago that the so the french authorities kind of tried to clear that almost as a deterrent but it sounds like all, all that did was just make the conditions worse for the people that are are, are on the border. Yeah, so I th there there's now like pockets of different uh, camps. So you've got uh, a specifically Eritrean site, so only Eritrean people live there. Um, they've got babies there. It's absolutely, you know, no baby should be living in those sort of circumstances. And then you've got different camps. Um, so some for Sudanese, and then um, and sometimes like those from Iraq, Iran and Afghanistan will live with them, but sometimes there's conflict. So uh, there's there's pockets across Calais of different camps, um, but the numbers are, are, are significantly less than um, than when the jungle was there. Yes. OK, thank you. Um, um, Miranda, was there anything you wanted to add, add to that one at all? No, I th think um, Polly's covered it all. Thank you. Thank you. Ian, did you have the next question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, both of you have, um, have spoken uh, about working with unaccompanied minors. Um, so if I put this to Miranda first, so can you just tell us a little bit about the, the, the unaccompanied minors that are arriving and, and, and how they've come to be here and, you know, maybe give us a bit of insight into their story? So, um, I People, 
generally people are fleeing from a life-threatening situation. I've worked with a number of young people who've had to leave the country that they were born in and their families um, because their father might have been arrested or taken away by the government and by the army and that sort of thing. They are male and they don't want to be pulled into um, fighting for something that they don't believe in. And so they, they, they want a better, better chance at having a future by coming to the UK where they hope to be safe. Um, I, th I think we tend to forget how much trauma that whole decision um, leaves the young people with. Um, but I think it's very much, it's very easy for us to say, are they fleeing the country? When you hear some of the stories that I've certainly heard, and I know that Polly has heard um, about why they've left, they, um, for example, one young person was telling me he watched his father killed by somebody um, from the army. The animals were taken away, um, he hid, and he flee, flew to the UK. But that journey actually took him three years. It wasn't sort of like we'll get to France and then we get across the water. There's a lot of living and there's a lot of waiting uh, that they have to do to make that journey. And they come here, a lot of them very, very traumatised. And they don't have the ability when they first get here to be able to express that. Um, they, do, they need to feel that they are safe, they need to feel that they are secure before they can even sort of like approach talking about it. And it's still something they'll often hold very close to them. Um, it, it's fleeing from um, a life, life threats um, that are coming their way. And it's also fleeing from what might end up being their future. Mm -hmm. Ollie, would you like to add anything to that? Um, yeah, sorry, can you tell me the exact question again, just so I can... Yeah, it was really, it was really just to give us an insight into the, particularly the unaccompanied minors who are, who are making the crossing on their own. You know what, what their life is like. Um, you know, oh, just give us an insight into their story. Yeah, it's it, you know, it hasn't been easy for them at all. Their resilience is, you just could not believe it. That they are the most amazing young people. They have. The things that they have seen and witnessed, I wouldn't even wish on my worst enemy. Um, and the journey itself is completely traumatic. So what they've seen back in their home country is significantly horrendous. But the journeys they make, um, so they'll kind of, if you're coming from Africa, you'll go up into Libya. And Libya is completely lawless. A lot of them will spend time in prison there. And the body map of scars on their bodies from being, um, what's the word? Um, basically terrorised with like electrical instruments or they're beaten so badly. Um, their body map of scars is absolutely hideous. It, they just look like dot to dot with all the lesions and the scars on their bodies of how they're treated. Um, so, it, you know, it's not it's not an easy journey for them at all. And I just love working in this se sector because I, I want to make a difference for those that have made that deadly crossing. Um, the Libya to Italy one is uh, th around three days. So actually the British one, they just see as like, oh, final slog, you know, if we make it great, if we don't, we've tried. Um, and I would say that through, sorry, I'm just rambling on, but that's me. Um, 
they are on the most part uh, very religious like of muslim religion so they they feel that very much like allah has has provided them with like the ability to get here and they all pray to allah um to kind of give them you know give them safe uh, a, a safe journey um but yeah so not easy whatsoever um they haven't just come for free they they're literally fleeing the most awful things you could you know watching their mums being raped their fathers being killed i had one who his whole family were lined up and his dad was beheaded in front of him um and then other family members and he managed to run away and when you run away you run away there and then there's no going home to get you know well whatever they might have once you're in the situation you then flee so sometimes you don't even get the ability to mm -hmm. say goodbye and i had one boy the other day tell me um he doesn't even remember what his mum looks like because you know they don't have any photos they don't have anything like that so he doesn't even know what her face looked like anymore and i think that's hideous it's a, a, a very very tragic story isn't mm. it really is and i guess that kind of speaks to what Miranda was saying earlier on about um uh, you know about if if that was one of your kids um you'd want to know that there was someone actually that was going to be helping them um and it's an unimaginable unimaginable mental and physical scars that you were talking about I don't, you know it's um that that would be a perilous journey for a, for a grown adult but for a child to do that and to feel that they have to run um you know from that that's um it's, it's not something that even kind of I think we can kind of compute and understand um the sort of terror involved so um so Polly um so we, we we're seeing we you know we're seeing um so many you know many people um sadly in this desperate situation and they're risking that risking their lives and you say that the the UK you know the France the UK crossing is is kind of like the uh, um perhaps kind of the you know the last bit you know the the kind of kind of bit what's what, what is it that's draw you know what is it that's that's um that that's that's setting the uk as their destination if that you know if they've they, they've made that perilous you know two three year journey across europe what what's what's behind what's the motivation for that well so as i said before in calais you know france is a safe country mm -hmm. we all know that but they are not allowed the ability uh to to live there in you know kind of normal si situation they don't have a roof over their head so they're making that journey to the uk because they feel that they will be given safety here um some of the young people i've worked with do have family members here it might be like an uncle or a brother and the local authority will provide dna tests because you know because they want them to be with the families um, if they've got a brother or a sibling here, that type of thing. And I guess back in the day, you know, this was the, the great place to come to, you know, they just see it and think, oh, you know, we'll, we'll be given a safe life there. We can get a job, we can earn money, you know, we can have a safe life. Um, and some of the places they've been to on the way, um, Malta, for example, they're also put in prison there. So even in safe countries, they're not they're not treated like humans they're treated like a bit of dirt on your shoe um and so i guess i guess england's like the final place isn't it and i guess where we're an island it's kind of like 
oh, you know, let's just try and make the, the crossing. And, and then that's the final destination, isn't it? That's the final like destination. But the thing is, so many millions have uh, sought refuge in Germany and other countries. We take such a minority, I don't know the figures, but we take such a significantly less amount than other European countries. And um, yeah, it's just, I've, I've forgotten what the question was because I was just going on. Um, oh, why are they coming in the boat? Yeah, because because they want they want safety. They just want to live a normal life, you know. Like like we have been so so lucky to be born in this country, and that's why I say to them. I said it was only luck that allowed me to be born in this country. Unfortunately, you weren't, and you've had to go through these things to um because of where you were born. So that that's why I feel that they're making the crossing. Okay. Thank you. Miranda, did you have anything to add on that one at all? Oh, I, think, I think it is. I think it's about them being um, allowed uh, to live a life and it's about them being allowed to have a future and being allowed to plan for that future. Um, and for them, this is safe. This is safety. And they really, really need to feel it. You know, they, they've they've come over at a young age. They generally don't have much communication, if any, with their families or their parents. Um, but we can help them to feel safe um, and supported when they get here. Mm -hmm. So, so it's kind of bearing in mind the, the places where they're coming from. Uh, are they? Are they? really kind of searching for somewhere that's safe and stable where they feel they can build a, a quote unquote a, no, a normal life that isn't you know threatened by the sorts of tragedy and chaos that they're that they're experiencing is, is that kind of the is that the is that the draw if if that's not really the, an awful word to use but is that you know yeah. what they're looking for is that security and that safety of course because you know currently where they're living back in their home countries like so for Iraq and Iran for example there's bomb maybe not so much now but they've grown up like dodging bombs literally and being recruited into ISIS and obviously if you're recruited in but you say no you you can't just say no and they'll you know I'm sorry you're not coming in you'll be killed so you literally cannot live the way that we live here in the UK um and in Sudan, the Janjaweed, which is like a tribe, because it's very tribal in Sudan, um, they will just kill you. Life is so cheap out there. They will kill you for, for literally no reason. So most of the young people that we deal with, a close sibling or, or parent may have been, been killed. Um, so that's why they're fleeing. They, yeah, just it must be so strange when they get here and it's safe. Because as well on the journey, they've come across a lot of unsafe things, and um, so yeah, I do. I, I think they find it strange when they finally get here, and their sleep patterns are well. They don't have a sleep pattern because normally, when you're um, doing the journey, you sleep during the day, and then you travel at night to kind of go undetected. Um, not so much when they get to France, because in Calais, they you know they're living there for a bit before they're trying to make those crossings um but yes 
So Thank you, forgive you. me if this next question is slightly provocative, but I think it's important to ask it because it is it is one that, that gets asked often, which is many people kind of say, well, I get that they're fleeing from peril in, in North Africa or Afghanistan or, or in certain African states. But they say, well, once you've got to France, you know, France is a safe country. So so why not claim asylum there? Well, because they're not allowed what? to. Um, when I was speaking to uh, a refugee over there, they said it was very much like they will pick and choose who was allowed to claim asylum. I don't. I don't think anyone would be living on the street if they didn't have to. So they, mm. you know, they do ask to claim asylum there, but unfortunately, they're not given that ability. I, I do believe that some, you know, some have settled. A lot of my young people speak to their friends that are still in France, and um, some have settled and claimed asylum there. But unfortunately, others aren't able to. So that's why they're, you know, like Britain's the last place on the, you know, the last stop, isn't it? So I guess they can only hope that they'll be able to claim asylum here. Thank you, Polly. Miranda, any perspective on that? No, I, I think it is just. Um, just about being able to claim asylum and being um, supported to be able to do so, um, and I I don't know that 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 I know that doesn't happen over in France, um, but hopefully, certainly the young people that I've worked with are all supported to be able to make that claim, and I don't know that they have that that sort of system or that care wrapped around them in the same sort of way, um, which doesn't afford them the security that and the safety that they need uh, because of their traumatic past. Thank you. Okay, so um, so the so again the next question um, uh, um and I'll direct this first to to Miranda. So the UK press it's quite e it's quite easy to see in some of them they seem to find very easy copy in in, um, in demonising um, in de demonising um, these these sorts of people making these perilous journeys as as either benefit scroungers or or as as would be terrorists. What's what's the reality in 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 the contributions that they make to society and actually the the you know what what their experience is because you know the reality is you know what what you read in the headline of a Daily Mail. Um, what's the reality? The reality is uh, certainly the young people that I. Uh, work with have a real thirst to learn they want more knowledge and they want to go further than that I've worked with a young person and I know that Polly works with young people who've been able to do that who've gone on to university which will then one of them I hear wants to be a doctor and will then give back to the society and the community that they're living in. Um, I had a great opportunity of seeing young people both volunteer and work at Victoria's for three days. I have never met people of that sort of age with such an amazing work ethic, even though they were being told at sort of like half past eight, it's okay guys, you can go. They were like, no, no, no. We said till nine o'clock, we stay until nine o'clock and they did it for three days. Um, I think they benefit our society. They want to, to, um, develop themselves so that they can contribute and so that they can give back. We're talking about um, an awful lot of young people who have never had an education. Their, their future 
isn't as I, I our young people it isn't laid out in that way we have young people who don't know how to write when they get here they don't know the mistake is often made that if uh, something is written in their language they'll be able to read it but that isn't the reality they can't read you know you, you find different ways of um helping them to learn even going down to the beach and uh writing or drawing pictures in the sand and then putting words next to it to make them feel involved that sort of thing and that for me it gives me an awful lot it gives me new ways to learn about these young people and to work with these young people i think these young people have an amazing work ethic all of the young people that i work with want to work all of the young people that I know hope they get asylum because they want to go to work. They want to give back. They don't want to work cash in hand. They want a proper job. They want to give back to a society that can give them the opportunity to have a future. Um, and that, for me, is really important that we know that. And we saw that highlighted, didn't we, with the whole, whole petrol thing. You know, we keep sending people back and we keep sending people back. And yet the very people that we keep sending back are the people that we actually need because we seem to be in a society where a lot of, a lot of people pick and choose what they will and they won't do because they are not prepared to do the hard slog day in, day out. Yeah. I guess it, it requires some a certain level of determination and fortitude to make that crossing or you, you know to make that entire journey even if you didn't have it at the start you you must surely develop it through the through the course of it along with obviously probably all the all the trauma and stuff but it's it, it's not exactly an easy an easy choice is it even if choice is, is the wrong word it's you know to, to think that that's a oh that's because it's easy to do um and you know they come here for a um well, it's not exactly an easy an easy journey at all is it um no, Polly, did you have anything on that one? Oh, sorry. Sorry, Miranda, I go think on. That is how they're sort of like publicised as people mm. who've, you know, had a short journey over here and everything's fine and they just want to get some money and, you know, live whatever sort of life they're going to live. But nobody ever looks further than that about what that journey actually entailed. They didn't get on an aeroplane and fly over here. No. no. And that's, that's, isn't, I don't often see that publicised. I do see all these immigrants have got here, but not about the traumatic journey they've suffered on the way here. They are human beings. Indeed, and that's the. I think that's the. That's the, an underlying tragedy, isn't it? When when people are talking about numbers and they're talking about you know statistics, these are these are these are human beings that we're talking about. These are people. They are these are these are you know as as, as you've both talked about. Some of them are children, um, and that's that's horrific. Polly, anything to add on that? Yeah, so basically, like Miranda said, and she said it really well, it's just they have got such an amazing work ethic. Back home, yeah, they might not have been educated, but they worked on their dad's farm. They worked in the local market. I've had some that were basically slaves in like gold mines in Chad. So, you know, they literally had to work to survive. If they didn't work, there might not be food on the table that day. So unlike, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but... British kids, you know, similar ages. It's all a bit, oh, life's so tough, you know. I've got to work eight hours at Matalan this weekend or whatever, you know. Whereas these young people, they're so hungry to learn or to, you know, to when they can get the ability to work. Honestly, seeing them on there, you know, Thursdays going to a job, it's it's the most.
Oh, we've lost Polly. Um, but yes, it's, it sounds like that's a that's a fulfilling and amazing thing to see when when you when you see them get to a position where where you know they someone is offered able to offer them a job or they've got some stability in education. Exactly, and you know, um, more than that, a number of um, young people that I've worked with have worked at both the Victoria's Festival and the We Shine Festival, and those who don't have um, Leave to Remain have volunteered at those, and so they are giving back to their own community and becoming part of. Well, that's one of the real frustrations, isn't it? Is it's my understanding that while an asylum application is being processed, effectively you know even with the greatest work ethic in the world the person isn't allowed to work until no. they get leave to remain no that's absolutely correct um so we have a have a number of people in our country who would like to be able to go out and work but that's not something they can do and it's probably something so whereas a lot of our, our children have grown up being educated and going to school they've been going to work and suddenly that that bit of normality for them is ripped away when they get here because they can't even go out to work. And, and just in, I'm presuming we've still lost Polly. Uh, Polly's just come back. Oh, that's marvellous, marvellous. Um, so, so yeah, you're getting that very strong picture of of work ethic, and if I can't work, then then you know I'll, I'll volunteer. So that's a, you know again that that is. Uh, it paints such a different picture, and I think you touched on it, Miranda, to what we see in the mainstream press. Yeah, absolutely. So, obviously, one of the things that we've seen, uh, that, that a change that I think has happened over uh, recent months, and I think, Polly, when we were talking about the, the show in advance, you said, well, the, the technology that, that effectively where has quote-unquote improved that means that people sort of trying to smuggle their way through the channel tunnel uh, has decreased forcing me more people onto boats and we've seen the tragic consequences of that you know so my 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 question is what what would you like the uk government to do to stop the traffickers exploiting these people in you know using dangerous tiny boats to make the uh to make the crossing that's for me isn't it yeah that is you yeah um do you know what i was thinking about this before ian and i really don't know the answer um and i don't know that my answer is the right answer so I, I don't know how to answer this one um the thing is if they don't come across on the boats they're never going to come here so for them it is that you know make that life or death journey otherwise potentially they're going to get to Calais and then they're going to live in Calais on the streets for the rest of their lives or Cannes, you know, where, wherever they live in the north of France. Um, mm. So I, I, I don't know that. Can we generally chat about that one? Because I don't know what the right answer is. Miranda, what are mm -hmm. your thoughts? I, I Like you, I, 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 I'm not completely sure, but I think what we need to remember when all those decisions are being made is, again, that they are human beings with feelings and emotions and things that have actually happened. And we need to bear that in mind because the journeys they are now taking and the risks they are now taking 
are too high. Exactly. The price is too high. Yeah. But I... Um, Sorry, I have seen suggestions that there have been suggestions that, you know, that there should be an immigration processing point on the French side of the channel where UK border officials effectively would would make a preliminary assessment um, and then effectively if somebody passed that that kind of level then they would um, you know effectively we would use more suitable transport to transport them from France to uh, France to the UK um, there's been obviously well so I, I I definitely feel that more young people should be given safe passage so I've worked with over probably around 250 young um, refugees. And I've only had one that has come here via safe passage, not as an illegal uh, entrant. So that one young person, he we uh, flew into Greece and we picked him and his younger brother up um, on, a, on a flight from Greece. It's under the Dubs Amendment. It's, it's one way yep. of safe passage as um, a child refugee. But that is only one young person and the rest of them are making these deadly crossings. And like I said to you before, Ian, um, they used to all get on the back of lorries. You know, that's how they would. The what Most of the ones that me and Miranda see have come on a lorry because they are coming into the Portsmouth port. So they'll be picked up at the Portsmouth port. Yep. But the ones in the boats, that's, you know, they're going from Calais to Dover, that type of route. Um, I feel potentially those in, in Calais, we should be saying, right, we'll take X amount of you and you can come and live in the UK to prevent them from having from having to make these deadly crossings. And I, this isn't based on fact because I don't know, but a lot of the young people or the families, whoever you see on those boats, they are normally like Iraqi, Iranian or Afghan. Ghani, um, uh, you know, they're, they're not from Sudan, so I th I think they have more money behind them. Those from Africa would would not be able to pay those prices to the traffickers. So it's the families back home that are paying the the smugglers. Um, but I will say as well, on on the journeys, the the smugglers and the traffickers treat the young people absolutely hideously their hands are bound they're not allowed to speak their eyes are blindfolded um so yeah they're treated like you know literally like i said before like dirt on your shoe and that's by the people that are paid they've been paid significant amount of money um to transport them um yeah so i guess the answer to the question for me is i would like more uh, young people to be given safe passage um to allow them to you know not have to go on these perilous journeys where potentially uh they will lose their life Thank miranda you. anything to add to that no i i think it, it's absolutely right i do believe that the only way that we're going to stop um illegal crossings is giving um people some opportunities to safely come to this country um and therefore reducing the trauma um, and the loss of life that we see we're seeing at the moment and also, sorry just to add to that i do believe i i don't know because i don't i just don't that when i was in calais they were saying about they're trying to make it um illegal to 
to make that crossing so if you make that crossing and you survive the journey then on on entry into the uk you'll be put into prison so mate so i think there's a bill going through at the minute so maybe that's why they've been ramped up why so many people are trying to rush um to you know to rush to come here um i don't know if that's part of it or maybe because of the increased like border patrols um in france although i know the uk is saying that they're not really doing their job but maybe they feel like it's now or never potentially hmm desperate people are driven to do desperate exactly. things aren't they but i don't think that that's going to solve the problem either because you know life in prison in the uk is probably a lot better than you know life in prison in libya or working in a gold mine or you know watching your father being killed in sudan so actually i think they'd still be happy to make the crossing so it's not going to make it any better is it well yeah as you say um um, uh, you know, um, four safe walls with with um with food and a, and a safe place to sleep is still going to be a market improvement on on their previous experience, isn't it? Um, so um, yeah, I, I I guess kind of it seems like if we if we don't want there to be a market for unsafe and exploitative journeys, then there needs to be a there needs to be a workable safe way to do it and and, and as you know Ian said that seems to be something that has been float been floated about and uh, and i think because back when the when there was the established um the jungle camp was that sangha in calais there was wasn't there i think there was um uk border force officials there actually processing um claims so it, it's not like these things are unknown ideas it just seems for some reason we're not exploring them I wonder if maybe because they feel that, okay, we'll let example 1,000 through, then 1,000 will come. But maybe, I don't know, do we say, right, guys, we'll let 1,000 in, but that is it? To maybe as a preventative, you know, so that they know further back, actually don't come, the doors, well, you, you can't do that either, can you? No, no, and it's it is, and these are, and this is the, and I think Simon touched on it earlier, and this is where it becomes such a very difficult subject to discuss because there is an element of behind every number is a person, and so you know whichever way, wherever you look to set the line, and political opinion has the line set in different places, there is an element. There will always be somebody who will fall the wrong side of that line. Who, when you look at their them as an individual and their experience, you know they are they are perhaps, and I hate to use the word more deserving of asylum, um, but but you know that their, their their story, that you know their experience means that you, you should be taking them. It's incredibly complex, um, complex challenge. And also, I feel sorry, it's a bit random, me, um, but. Um, I don't even know what I was going to say. Sorry. Um, working for the charity Care for Calais, when I was, I I collect stuff and then distribute have distributed it in France. Um, during the time of the Afghanistan crisis, oh my, I got emails like six hundred emails a week. Can I help? You know, can I do this? Can I do that? And then before the Afghani crisis, I used to get like one email a month, maybe two emails a month. So. People aren't aware of it. And now that we're not, you know, we haven't got journalists in Afghanistan reporting back, it's like we've all just forgotten. So it's it's really 
difficult. But these young people, I think when they do arrive safely, it's about it's about allowing them to feel safe and to to be at one in society. They're still quite segregated. So that's why me and Miranda work really hard to try and, you know, embrace them in, into like, um, you know, what we do as a British society, but also allowing them to explore uh, their cultures with us as well. So that was so random. But I just thought I'd throw it in there. No, that's fine. I mean, it, it segues beautifully into because uh, our next question, which um, I was going to go, I'll I'll stay with you first and then go to Miranda. Sorry, just to switch it up a little bit. But so, Polly, if you you know, you're saying that before you had emails of help, if people want to help, who should they contact? What organisations organizations should they be in touch with? Okay, so in our local area, we've got uh, the Rural Refugee Network, who is hosted by uh, Nadia Parts, who is absolutely amazing and does some fantastic work with uh families um young asylum seekers um so there's um, there's the british red cross they offer some amazing services to our unaccompanied minors and also portsmouth uh, city of sanctuary are absolutely famous they're uh, fantastic there's a guy called malcolm little is it malcolm um he used to be at the red cross as well and they do some fantastic work about about showing people, um, you know, explaining to people about uh, the plight of refugees and how we can help. And they offer safe spaces around our city where vulnerable people can go and walk full sanctuary into safety. Thank you, Polly. Um, Miranda, any uh, any more to add to that of who people should contact if they want to help? Do you know, I also sort of like this is the homeless day service that you house in Milton um, Road, and there are a number of asylum seekers there um, currently um, who would be who would benefit from um, any any sort of like help and support they could get really as well. Um, so it isn't it's kind of like they've been, been integrated into that part of our society into the homelessness, um, and now we need to set, find a way of helping them. Um, move on fantastic thank you very much um and we'll include those when we when we do the upload for the podcast later on so uh we'll we'll put make sure all of those are in there and we'll we'll add them to the to the recording of this live stream so thank you so much yeah so as we come to the end of this segment we'd like to thank you both very much for your contribution um is there anything else that uh, that you'd like to add I, I would just say if you are ever out and about and someone says that they originate from any of the countries that we've said about, obviously don't go straight, well, oh, you're, you know, you're seeking asylum. But it's just about, um, you know, just making them feel included in society. Like they're still so segregated. And it's so although they've come to live in this country, they're still like in their own bubble in a way. So if you do ever come across someone that has sought asylum, just just give them the time of day, make them feel human, you know, speak to them, talk to them, let them improve their English with you. Um, and, you know, rightly or wrongly, if people don't agree with the crossings or they do, whatever your thoughts are, um, you know, some people have made that crossing, they've made it. Just let them, like, have the ability to live safely and securely when they get here. You know, if you don't agree with it, that's fine. But they are here, those ones that have arrived. So treat them somewhat with some respect. Um, they're human beings and what they've been through is 
I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. The things I've heard and seen, witnessed, is disgusting, honestly. The most horrific things you will ever hear. So let's just let them, you know, have the ability to live a happy and safe life um, if they've been able, lucky enough to make that crossing. Thank you, Polly. That's beautifully put. Thank you very much. Um, well, thank you very much both. Um, that's been a very informative um, segment, and um, and we've had a we had a comment that um, from one of our listeners saying that they they found that truly informative. So thank you both for opening our eyes to that, um, for the truth of that experience. Uh, and as I say, uh, we'll share the um, we'll share the details of how people can help um, with the um, with the upload later on. Thank you very much, both. Thank you so much, thank you. guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Couple of very inspiring guests, Simon. It, indeed, indeed. Um, and as is our method, sometimes um, we, um, when people get bored of listening to us, they get to hear to get to hear from people that know what they're talking about, have experienced some truly difficult situations, and can actually speak to them with authority um, rather than the easy headlines. So um, good to hear from them both. Thank you very much uh, to Polly and Miranda for, for agreeing to come on and um, sharing those details with us. So our last little bit is we had a by-election on Thursday. Uh, yes, well, we did. And, and by-elections um, are quite the thing, aren't they, really? Because, um, yes, on on December the 2nd, we, we saw the fifth um, parliamentary by-election of the year. Um, which is the sixth, uh, with the sixth due to take place in North Shropshire on December the 16th. But Thursday's by-election uh, brought about by the sad death of Conservative, James, uh, Conservative MP uh, James Brokenshire um, saw a, a comfortable win for the Conservatives, uh, but with a much reduced majority. So their majority was down by 13 and a half points, percentage points of the vote share. Um, but can they, can they remain comfortable, quote unquote, comfortable, um with um as the counting of the as the votes get cast in north shropshire um yes yeah because haven't haven't team orange and red done a little bit of a a little bit of a smoky room agreement um, well well there certainly seems to be some sort of uh, tacit informal agreement um because the the um although the conservative vote dropped from 64 and a half percent in 2019 to um, um, dropped um, to 51 and a half um, this time round. Um, the Labour vote for in 2019 was 23 and a half percent of the vote share, um, and actually rose to 30.9 percent. So, although sadly still, uh, sadly for those that that were supporting them, still nowhere near close. But the Lib Dems didn't really put any effort behind their campaign there, um, and saw their vote mm. drop from 18, uh, sorry, 8.3 to to 6.6. So, you know, does that that reflects a, an active, you know, an active decision not to uh, pursue the campaign, and they, they indeed lost their deposit. Well, it's and for me, this is a funny old election, and people have responded to it very differently because, you know, there's an element of of if we look at you know Labour thirty one percent, you know, gain seven percent, but actually they only back, bounced back to their twenty seventeen levels, so they had thirty one percent in twenty seventeen. 
obviously had a nightmare in 19 and, and lost 7%, and they've bounced that back. And obviously when you get a by-election, you get all sorts of weird and wonderful characters come out of the, the woodwork, and I think there's some the ghost of UKIP, which you is it UK reform? So the, um, the, the reform UK, which were formerly the Brexit Party. So um, yes. in a feat of irony, Nigel Farage's Nigel Farage's splinter group from the from UKIP um, that then changed its yes. name um, took took um, took nearly four percent of the vote. Um, UKIP their yeah. their vote share in this by election. Uh, was under one percent, um, which is a massive drop compared to their heady days in 2015, where they had 18 percent of the vote. So it, yeah, lots, lots I, of them. And, and I guess for me, lots of weirdness, but ultimately, very low turnout. So I think 36 percent, something along those lines. Um, which we, we know sometimes turnouts in in by elections are, are low. Um, but there's an element of if if we look at it in its entirety, it was still a solid conservative hold. Um, and I, I know on one of the political forums, you 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 got a little bit of heat for suggesting that it was quote unquote comfortable. Well, for me, when you get more than everybody else added together, and you've got a twenty percent winning margin. It wasn't a nail biter, was it? Uh, no. So I, I, um, I, I mean, people can disagree with um, with my choice of the word comfortable, but I, I don't. I, I, I wouldn't describe it as under threat. So, the, so I guess the question, kind of going forward, and the circumstances of this by election are obviously quite different to the circumstances of the upcoming election on December the sixteenth, um, in North Shropshire. Um, in, in which is brought about by um, Owen Patterson standing down after um, uh, after being um, being found to have um, breached uh, parliamentary rules with regarding um, paid advocacy. Um, so that's a different kind of kettle of fish, isn't it? Really, as opposed to the um, as opposed to a by election brought about by the by the sad death uh, of an MP. So yeah. um, you know that's yeah. So I think if we. Yeah, it, it, we, we've got the, the difference between untimely death, you know, which is, is sad. And, you know, there's there's questions, of course, you know, in terms of those circumstances as to what is and isn't appropriate. Um, and we can maybe touch on that is not the same as somebody who is caught with their entire upper body in the cookie jar have shamelessly refused to resign. The shamefulness is then doubled down by trying to change the rules to allow them an appeal, which is then eventually, when that all just looks too tawdry and unpleasant for everybody, uh, Mr. Patterson then falls on his sword. Um, so, you know, ultimately, anybody that wants to bring their sleaze trumpet or perhaps even even a sleaze euphonium to the North Shropshire by-election. You might even have a marching brass band. Oh, of... Well, yeah, I mean, um, by-elections, as, as you said, are, are a bit of a different animal to general elections. Um, by the way, from 2001 to 2019, um, the Bexley um, constituency, the average turnout was 68.4%. Um, on Thursday, it was 33.5%. So... 
that kind of tells you, you know, you know, um, just over just over half, isn't it? Um, but North Shropshire, um, different different kettle of fish or a different kettle of onions, as as um as one of my friends would say. Um, so their average turnout, um, two thousand and one to two thousand and nineteen was sixty five point eight percent, so not a huge amount in it. Um, but the by election yep. on, on the sixteenth. So interestingly, here we we talked about um, you know, use the phrase quote unquote backroom deals. Um. The Lib Dems um, had a poll of um, of postal postal ballots, uh, which mm -hmm. the North Shropshire Star um, reported on, um, saying that that actually put the Lib Dems within ten percent, sorry, ten percentage points of the Conservatives um, in um, in that. So um, I forget which of the Hitchens brothers it is that says that polls are only released with, to uh, to manipulate voters i may be paraphrasing me massively but there's only there's only one reason why a party releases an internal poll and that's obviously because they feel that it's it's going to it's going to be favoring them um but having said that in cheshire in cheshire and amersham um the um a similar poll had the had the lib dems um less than 24 percent um points percentage points behind the conservatives and they actually went on to to win that by-election so who knows? So, do we, so do we know if Team Red have are are just going to stick a name on a ballot paper and encourage all of their folk to vote for you? Well, it, it seems that actually that, that was the other interesting thing is that um, I think that's kind of what seems to be happening is that they're not fighting hard to um, to be able to to um, to win it. But from a point of view of the, the point that you make there about one political party can say to their supporters, hey, look, we're, we're not going to, you know, we're going to put a name on a piece of ballot paper, but we're not going to, um, you know, we're not actually going to really do any active campaigning. Please, can you lend your vote to Party X? And that's kind of the the, the, the theory behind a, a possible progressive alliance, as it's called. The, the, the trouble with that, and indeed, as um, former Lib Dem leader Tim Farron uh, wrote in the New Statesman back in uh, June, is that voters don't belong to political parties. And indeed, they won't they won't quite rightly do what actually political parties tell them to do and actually um there's many examples where um to you you know using the lib dem situation there are many people that would if they weren't going to vote lib dem because the lib dem didn't stand rather than actually give their vote to as an example to uh, to the labor party or not vote at all they might actually vote tory so if the idea of a quote unquote progressive alliance is to um is to field the whichever is the most combative candidate to out sitting mm. conservative, that's that's not really very useful strategy to to employ. So rather than stepping aside, is it more useful to actually have a can, you know, a name on a ballot paper, but not to spend any money? Because in Bexley, the, the you know, the five hundred pound deposit that the Lib Dems have lost is less than the cost of a round of leaflets for the constituency. You know, if you knew you were not in a million miles of winning it, um, and actually all they've done is, you know, lost the vote share by two percentage points. So there's a logic of rather than just not standing, of agreeing mm. that whoever is the most combative um, and stands the most chance, um, it gets very personal when you start talking about a, a similar debate about our, our you know, constituencies closer to home, uh, like Portsmouth South, for example. Yep. Um you know, can you really argue that a sitting Labour MP is likely to be ousted by a by a um, by a, by a Lib Dem? Um, probably not. Well, I, well, I, I I guess Portsmouth South that conundrum, isn't it? Which is that 
you know, in the last 20 odd years, it's been all three colours. Yes, it moves backwards and forwards. But if, if your mm. argument is trying to say we are the best, not the person that's actually the current MP, but us, we're the best people to make sure that the Conservatives don't win. That that kind of doesn't pass the logic test for a lot of people. And I can understand. Yeah, no, and I, I, think, I think that that's the case, isn't it? Is that, you know, if we look at Portsmouth South, you know, at the end of the day, if you want Stephen Morgan, his personal brand is very strong. He romped home last time. But the only people, the only party that is likely to depose Stephen Morgan is the Conservative Party. So you kind of look at that and say, well, is the Progressive Alliance there to say, um, A, you're going to stand a candidate as the Lib Dems, you know, to make sure that people, as you say, that you don't separate into Kurds and Way and some vote Conservative and some vote for Stephen. Um, so, yeah, no, fascinating. And we will obviously cover, well, we will be off air by the time the result comes through. So we'll have to pick that one up as a, as a, as oh, a New let, Year's present. Yeah, unless it's that much of a shock that we do a special episode. But I don't know. It depends how much I have to bribe you if that happens. Um, but, um, yeah, oh, we, yeah. We, we, we shall see. Um, but that's the, that's the, that's the conundrum that, that's, that's facing all of the progressive um, parties, um, aside from defining what progressive means, um, would be, okay, how, do, how does that work? Progressive. Um, and yep. um, how, can, how, can we make, how can we make progress? So on that bombshell, we are done. You've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And our guests have been Polly and Miranda, and I've been Simon Sansbury. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows, and get to know when we're live. We normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening. Then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast. Blue and yellow till we die from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. Stop. See? It's easy.